You're listening to Season 3 of Future Ecologies. Hey everyone, this is Adam, and this is the third and final episode of our series, Nature by Design, which is kicking off our third season. If you haven't listened to parts one and two, then I recommend that you start there, because this is essentially one conversation that ended up being so rich that we had to break it into three parts. To summarize, in parts one and two, I introduced Mendel to two mentors of mine, Eric Higgs and Oliver Kelhammer, and their ideas about designing with nature. Those episodes focused on ecological restoration and ecologies that we design intentionally. This episode, on the other hand, will deal with ecosystems that we create by accident. This is Nature by Design, Part 3, Freakological Fallacies. Can we keep going? Indeed. Um, So where was I? Well, uh, last time you split the ecologies around us into three categories. And I'm pretty sure you had just made all of them up. Yeah, I definitely just made them up. So you identified those ecologies that human beings create as audacious ecologies. And we spent most of the last two episodes talking about those kinds of ecologies that we create on on purpose. Right, but the vast majority of the ecologies that we humans create are are not on purpose. They are accidental byproducts of our economies and our lifestyles. And and these kinds of places are all around us. They they might even feel comforting because we're so used to living in them. And since we started last episode with a flashback to Eric's younger days, it seems appropriate for us to now take a trip down memory lane with Oliver. And as it turns out, he also grew up around the same time in... Uh, don't, don't tell me. An industrial part of suburban Ontario. Exactly. It's like the primordial ooze from which Canadians form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as a child, my, my father worked in, in factories. And then sometimes on the weekend, he'd have to go in. Uh, he eventually became a foreman and had to watch the machines going in on a weekend to make sure they were still working. And uh, he would take me with him because my mother worked in a supermarket and uh, she couldn't look after me. So, so he would take me to the factory and I was intrigued, you know, by these sort of industrial spaces. And, and they often had like a yard in the back where there was like all kinds of rusty machinery and weeds and like sort of fetid puddles of chemically contaminated water and and I was like really excited by those places they uh, early on I was quite interested in them and the, I remember the house I grew up in uh, you know was in an area that used to be orchard but they just went in with bulldozers and pushed all the fruit trees out of the way so they were like upside down fruit trees all over the place that were dead and so it was a kind of carnage situation but as a child I this is in the uh, suburbs of Toronto. I, I found it interesting. That was a sort of normal landscape. And then there was like these giant construction sites everywhere. They were building shopping malls. This would have been the early 1960s. And uh, so there was giant holes in the ground with big piles of subsoil beside them, which were full of prehistoric um, fossils of coral and uh, shells and things. And I was like so interested in how, oh my God, you know, Southern Ontario used to be a tropical ocean, you know, and 
So uh, this disturbance uh, was always part of my aesthetic, and I grew up in disturbed landscapes, and I just thought that that was kind of normal. So when I'm in a place like this, we're currently sitting in this beautiful place in uh, near Victoria, it's incredibly beautiful and heartbreakingly beautiful, but it's also kind of alien to me. It's not really my natural habitat. It, it does feel a little um, too, too beautiful. I don't know. Is there such a thing? But maybe, yeah. From a tropical ocean to a Laurentian forest, and then from orchards to landscapes of disturbance, this is a story that has been playing out anywhere that human beings congregate on this planet. We reshape the earth, we alter hydrology, we introduce new species, and we even change the climate. All while trying to achieve a usually completely unrelated purpose, like digging up useful rocks or making food or manufacturing widgets. And meanwhile, we've taken what typically would have been a functional ecosystem, and we've scrambled its constituent parts. Sometimes our impacts cease after this initial scrambling. Other times, our continued presence and activities create novel conditions that can persist for decades or even centuries. So what do you call it when, from all that scramble, out hatches up? flamingo <laughs> um well if you if you were to ask eric he would call that flamingo a novel ecosystem and if you were to ask oliver he would call that flamingo a hyperecology. so i guess you can call it whatever you like i i still like freakosystems so in this last episode of Nature by Design, we're asking what, if anything, should we make of these scrambled places? The true freakosystems of the Anthropocene. Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Wasatch, Penelicate, Bulitsum, Lalum Saritaneo, and other Halkomium speaking peoples. This is Future Ecologists. Um, okay, so before we continue, I just wanted to challenge you on something. Uh, you've said before that almost all of the ecosystems around us, especially those in, in favorable climates, have experienced intensive human impacts over long periods of time. And like, you know, that's often predating European settlement. Definitely. Yeah. So in keeping with your idiosyncratic taxonomy, uh, wouldn't that make most ecosystems into audacious ecologies? I guess I, I would say no, because most of the time our impacts leave their marks on the landscape for a while. But I, I would argue that historically these impacts have had more in common with other forms of natural disturbance, like a wildfire or a windstorm than they've had with, like, uh, trying to terraform an uninhabitable planet. Sure. Or building a mall. Right. Which is, like, functionally the same approach. It doesn't look that different, right? <laughs> yeah, more or less. 
So with these historical disturbances, usually natural processes of succession would take over. Right. Meaning the ecosystem eventually recovers in some way. Grasslands fill back in and and forests regrow. Yeah. Marshes get marshy. Marshes get marshy. And usually we just take this for granted. And really crafty human societies have actually harnessed this cycle of disturbance and regeneration to grow food and other useful things. Yes. Um, And so to leave behind what I would call an audacious ecology, you'd have to go beyond that level of disturbance. You'd have to transform nearly every aspect of a given ecosystem at once and basically send it on a totally new trajectory. And I'm not saying that people didn't do this in the past. Like people totally did this in the past. And it's it's pretty likely that some ecosystems that we see as natural were actually created in, intentionally or accidentally by people way back when. And over time, they've just gone from audacious to what I would call tenacious or cherished, if you will. Yeah. So So when people talk about the Amazon rainforest being, you know, a, a human-made food forest. That's exactly what they're talking about. Yeah. So the difference now is just scale and, and speed. Essentially, there's there's not as much time to recover and and the impacts are so much deeper and, and wider all at once. I, I'd say that's exactly it, that we've always transformed the ecosystems around us to some extent, but now we're doing it all the time, all over the planet, and in many places, just like to such extremes that natural successional processes cease to function as they had previously. Like in those chemically contaminated wastelands that Oliver described from his days of yore. Yeah. And and sometimes these places are so wrecked that they just can't recover at all on their own. But every now and then, these totally unprecedented ecosystems form, composed of species that have never occurred together before. And they're functional. And when you say functional, what, what do you mean exactly? <laughs> you're, really, you're asking all of the hard questions at the top of the episode. That's what I'm here for. Okay, anyway. Um, one way that you could define functionality is that an ecosystem provides many of the ecosystem services that we as people tend to value. Are, are you familiar with that term, ecosystem services? I am, but I think we should break it down a little bit more. Ecosystem services is a term that ecologists and economists have come up with to try to quantify in financial terms the benefits that ecosystems and species and biodiversity provide to us. Because, you know, people have learned the hard way over time that unless we can put things in terms of dollars and cents, um, people tend not to value them in the society that we live in. Mm -hmm. And there's this huge debate between people who feel like we shouldn't put a dollar value on ecological systems and species and people who feel like it's actually really important that we do. And I think everybody's right, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) Um, But, you know, ecosystem services are useful in the extent to which they actually allow us to name some of the things that ecosystems do for us. And in this case, they're going to help me define what makes up a functional ecosystem. So so what are those? Okay, so ecosystem services are typically grouped 
into four broad categories, and I'm just going to go through them really quick. Um, the first category is provisioning services. So, like, providing something. Yeah. Like food or, or like water. They produce food and, and water and materials for us. Right. Okay. Um, the second category is regulating services. So that like like a buffer in some way. So they maybe like like how a forest might keep the the region a lot cooler than it would be otherwise. So it regulates the local climate. Absolutely, yeah. Like temperature regulation, storm mitigation, you know, flood mitigation, disease prevention, these kinds of things. Right. Okay. So they they regulate. They regulate. Can you put a little Nate dog on this section? Okay, I don't know what you're talking about, but sure. Uh, <laughs> you don't know regulate? It's a classic. Oh. Sh- Okay, the third category is supporting services. Uh, supporting... Supporting what, exactly? (laughs) Yeah, that one's a little bit more opaque. Um, it means that they... They do things like cycle nutrients and they sequester carbon, right? So they... They provide kind of a backbone for lots of other processes to take place. Hmm. And another critical supporting service is pollination, right? All of those buzzing bees and flies making sure everything gets pollinated. Mm-hmm. Um, and the last category is cultural services. So, right. So some some place that what, when a place is like a, a social benefit, like the the trail systems, so they're aesthetic, or or people use them to spiritual ends, or. or or for recreation, right? Like that's an ecosystem service. Exactly. All of those values that are maybe a little bit more intangible, but still like very important to us as people. Yeah. And and again, human centric in that way. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, ecosystem services like are provided for the whole biological community, right? It's not just, it's not just for us, um, but certainly the cultural services, uh, that category I, I would say is mostly for us. So if some... If an ecosystem has some combination, some balance of provisioning, regulating, supporting, and cultural services, then it that makes it functional. Yeah, I think you could say at that point that it's a functional ecosystem, especially if it's resilient through time, right? That it that it stands up to various pressures or or or, or change, right? Hmm. And so these unprecedented ecosystems that I was just describing, uh, these freakosystems or flamingos, whatever you want to call them, even though they never would have existed without our human intervention, and even though nobody consciously designed them, some of them end up being functional. Okay, I'm satisfied. You can break all the eggs you want, but you're only occasionally going to get a flamingo to hatch from the scramble. Sure, yeah. And that kind of urban sprawl that Oliver grew up within that seems like a it would be a perfect example of a place where people have created freakosystems without planning to. I'd say yes. Although Oliver would actually quarrel with the idea that sprawl is unplanned. You know, what is sprawl? I mean, sprawl is an aesthetic uh, judgment, like, you know, people are moving into areas where you don't want them to be moving, right? And so who are you and what are those areas? Like favelas, I mean, people don't like them because there's all these like little junky houses made out of cardboard and tape 
but that's because that's all people can afford and they're they're kind of genius people who who are building things out of nothing and and need a place to live so uh, but, you know, and when we think of sprawl, often in the North American context, we think of like the dreaded suburbia, which actually is not unplanned. In fact, it's the opposite of unplanned. It's extremely planned. It's just planned badly, but it's not unplanned. It, the plan is to take over as much farmland as possible and turn it into capital for developers. It's And, and uh, also sort of uh, class enhancement opportunity for the bourgeoisie. It has nothing to do with unplanning. It's it's planned. It's a disaster, but it's a planned disaster. I, I love that he called sprawl an aesthetic judgment. Right. Okay. So here, he's contrasting that creative exuberance of unplanned favelas with the planned disaster of suburbia. But in either case, there's, there's a lot of ecological disturbance involved. Totally. So Oliver grew up, uh, as I did, within the planned disaster of urban sprawl. And he kind of became enamored with what he calls ruderal ecologies, which are ecosystems of human disturbance, basically. Brownfields, industrial parks, dumps, um, train tracks. And I want you to hear him talk about them. So I'm going to cut back to those lecture tapes. Oh, you, you mean the ones where he's talking right next to a whole bunch of chickens? Yeah, those ones. <laughs> okay. There's also all these areas here of what they call ruderal ecologies or... Uh, brownfield ecologies or post-industrial ecologies where you, you know, you've all seen these places. Like, so this is between two buildings and nobody's done anything, right? It just sits there, right? The disturbed soil, usually very low in organic content. So what happens? So let's look at this, right? Nobody gardened this and you're like, oh my god, like, okay, I know about plants a little, right? So what, what's happening? What's happening? It's an ecosystem, right? So then I look at it, I'm going, wow, what do I know? Okay, well, I know that this is cottonwood, okay? That's native. That's native to North America, all over North America. I know that this is ailanthus, which is, we call them garbage palms or ghetto palms in New York. They're, they're a type of tree that's a little bit like a sumac, but they're native to Asia. I know that this is mugwort. That's it. It's mugwort. It grows everywhere in New York. And there's some mullein here. Often, in these kinds of places, functional ecosystems are just never allowed to form. Like, th there might be living things there, but most of them are just hanging on for dear life. And there's so much disturbance or toxicity that they don't really get a chance to build something lasting together. But there are lots of times when, left to their own devices, these ruderal ecologies can develop into functional ecosystems. Which, just to recap, are ecosystems that provide habitat and food and regulate climate and cycle nutrients and prevent erosion and so on and so on. Yes, and and Oliver calls these kinds of places hyperecologies. Right, so this is what I call a hyperecology, right? So it's a combination of native and exotic species. And it's just doing its thing, right? And it's the sort of primary stage of succession. It's growing on concrete and garbage and dog shit, basically. But it's an ecosystem. So I got to thinking, why don't I do this, right? Why don't I, like, Try to find a way to not think of these spaces as kind of failures, but to think of them as kind of successes. I'm thinking, wow, this is nature sort of fixing like the built environment, you know, because 
the idea of like the built environment as slow release fertilizer, buildings are slow release fertilizer, we're slow release fertilizer, even if we, anything we do ultimately has stuff growing on it. So, and these hyperecologies don't just support weedy species. In, in many cases, they can also be critical havens for endangered species. You have American elms, which only grow now in sort of industrial areas because they're, they, they, they're protected from the Dutch elm disease by living in these built environments, right? Whereas they're kind of endangered in the natural forest, right? So it's so weird that somehow these industrial areas are actually saving rare Native American species. It's so, so bizarre and counterintuitive. That's wild. So in this case, people accidentally introduced Dutch elm disease to North America, and that killed off all the elms in their native forest ecosystems. But we also accidentally created these sort of rural ecologies that in their own way provided insulation against the disease. So, so within those spaces, those trees could actually survive. Yeah, it's, it's such a bizarre story. And actually, one of the, the strangest examples of a hyperecology that I've personally experienced was in California, in, in El Sobrante. Right, yeah, the, the leftovers. Yep. It's actually on the Planting Justice food forest farm. Which we talked about on episode 2.4. Yeah. Anyway, there's this seasonal creek there at the bottom of the farm. And it's, it's clearly seen a lot of change over the last century. Like, it's been grazed, and it's been used for irrigation, and diverted, and then partially buried in a concrete culvert. And when I surveyed it, there was all manner of human detritus in there. And most of the creek goes dry in the summer, like many creeks in California. But I distinctly recall that this one section of the creek was wet year-round, because it was fed by a natural spring. And the strange thing was that that area was completely forested, but the forest had a canopy of bluegum eucalyptus trees and an understory of Algerian ivy and poison oak just, like, covering the ground and climbing up the tree trunks. And then it also had a sub-canopy of native arroyo willows and native California bay trees but the definitely non-native American elm. I mean, I, I'm not so familiar with these California ecosystems, but that... <laughs> right, right. I like expected that to land and have meaning, but you're like, what are you yeah. talking about? It does sound like strange company. Yes, to any botanist in California, this would be a very unusual sight <laughs> to see all of these species growing together and seemingly like making an ecosystem. But it was definitely there and definitely thriving. It had the structure of a natural forest and it was providing those ecosystem services we were talking about. It was preventing erosion in the stream bed and it was providing nesting sites for birds in the canopy and a leaf litter to build the soil. But it was definitely a hyperecology. Like I've never seen that kind of ecosystem anywhere else. But that's wild. And it's encouraging, I guess, to see those American elms making a comeback on their own terms and in these unlikely places. But here's a question. We we spent a lot of the last episode talking about restoration in that kind of active way. And wouldn't wouldn't this be the kind of place you'd want to restore to just those native species? Well, I guess that's the question behind this whole episode. Um, 
And if, if it was just a canopy of eucalyptus trees, personally, I, I would probably say yes if, um, if it was technically feasible. Like, you, you could argue that the native creek vegetation for this area could be more functional and provide more habitat for native species in the long term. Although with, with climate change, who knows, right? Hmm. We, ha- we have limited resources, right? So usually we're focused on restoring ecosystems that have been obviously damaged and that aren't really functional. Like something is preventing succession from even happening in the first place, or there's some kind of toxicity or human infrastructure or another issue that's preventing even basic recovery. But in the case of, you know, this little eucalyptus elm ivy forest, um, the ecosystem has kind of recovered, right? It, it just looks and feels very different to us. But you can't say that the hyperecology that you just described and, and whatever the native ecosystem would be. Probably a mix of Fremont cottonwoods and willows and maybe a California sycamore, right? Okay. Uh, you can't say that that's ecologically equivalent to the to the eucalyptus elm forest you just described. You're you're right. I I, I definitely can't say that. But when it comes down to it, our our powers to intervene in ecological systems are are limited, and our resources are limited. And I mean, Oliver actually makes the argument that the whole planet is a sort of rural ecology because humans have already had such a huge impact. I'm I'm not sure that I'd go that far. <laughs> no, you you're already set with your own categories. <laughs> That's right. I, I guess my point is just that we only have so much time and money, and in terms of like ecological triage, we tend to prioritize areas that have experienced the worst damage and where these kinds of functional hyperecologies haven't been able to develop. Either that, or places where we just have very specific values or goals that justify the investment. And, and and justify the risks, right? Because restoration is a young discipline. And there's always the potential that we'll damage something that's already working in our pursuit of something that we hope will work. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. We are unbounded in our capacity to mess up. So Oliver's argument would be that we should just learn to value and embrace these kinds of freakosystems, these these hyperecologies. I mean, he he did say that's where he feels most at home it is it it is his aesthetic i got a, a, a invitation to enter a, a kind of art show thing where they wanted me to design a sustainable garden right like for six weeks it was a world urban forum in vancouver and i was like oh man six weeks it's not very sustainable to bring in a bunch of plants and then take them out again it's sort of sucky and yet i wanted to do something because I, I wanted the commission so uh, I said, okay. Um, so I went down there and found this uh, weird little thing, which is like a concrete high- highway barriers. And in the middle of these barriers was like a pile of weeds, right? And I was like, wow, that's perfect. That's my sustainable garden. So I'm going to go rent some stairs. So I did. <laughs> and people can go up and look at the weeds and I'll call it done. And uh, and it was great because what I did was I went in there and I realized that these weeds. Um, this was before smartphones, so we just had those Nokia, you know, phones. Um, so um, I identified the weeds and I made a little one eight hundred. You could call one eight hundred whatever, and then it would say Scotch broom, you know, and it was me like recording talking about how Scotch broom got to North America. 
and how cool it is. Like how, you know, we, we, it has some problems, but it's also quite, quite cool. Himalayan blackberry, right? Cottonwood, right? Once again, but it, when you notice it, Scotch broom, like, well, where does it come from, right? So, uh, it's like, what is this silver dollar made out of and how much is it worth, right? It's like the same kind of question. So we know it comes from Scotland, right? Himalayan blackberry from Asia, right? And the, the native cottonwood. So you have essentially a reflection of the sort of human settlement of the lower mainland, right? So the weeds, in a sense, mirror us, right? Which is kind of cool. And uh, so this is us. The weeds are us, right? So uh, the native plants are still there, right? Some of them. Uh, and then you have these exotics as well, and they're kind of commingling in this sort of hyperecology. He is convincing. He is very convincing. He is. And, and I would say that his views would be controversial, to say the least, for many conservationists and restorationists. I, I'm not surprised. But let's say that you disagree with Oliver, right? You look at the eucalyptus and elm and ivy and poison oak and willow forest that I described in El Sobrante, and you don't see a functional artistic representation of the cultural diversity of the Bay Area. Instead, maybe you say to yourself, What a mess. Yeah, what a scramble. <laughs> Let's clean this up, right? Let's restore the native ecosystem. Okay. What if you can't? Uh, uh, oh, no. <laughs> what if you can't? What do you mean? Can't, can't we? Can't we do anything? What if it's impossible? Like, what if anything short of Disney-esque wilderness lodge levels of investment and engineering and intervention will fail to return this ecosystem to your desired state? What then? I, I hope you're going to tell me. Eric is going to tell us. Oh, <laughs> nice. That's my transition. Did you, did you catch it? I did. I, I noticed. Okay, so these never-before-seen ecologies that we've accidentally created, that Oliver refers to as hyperecologies, there's actually a technical term for these that has developed within the ecological restoration discourse. Okay. They're called novel ecosystems. And it just so happens that Eric is one of the principal architects of this concept. He edited a whole book on the topic. What a coincidence. But before we can continue, he has a disclaimer for us. I realize that if people superficially look at what I've written on restoration, where they read this book, Nature by Design, and they take that title, and then they look at novel ecosystems, they might construct the idea of, a, of someone who is really interested, kind of bullish, a promoter of these, this kind of emerging novelty in nature. And it's very much not the case. If you do a fine read on Nature by Design, which you have, you'll say that I'm pulling exactly in the opposite direction. I want to get away from a technological notion of ecosystem. I want to embed a commitment to ecological integrity. I want to understand the process of historical knowledge and how it informs restoration. I want to see how people connect more deeply to place through restoration. And then I want to try to rein this in, our kind of ambition as people, this sort of technological ambition, I want to rein that in by saying we need to be careful designers, whatever we do with restoration. So to be clear, Unlike Oliver, Eric is not necessarily thrilled to see these novel ecosystems cropping up everywhere. 
nope, not, not really. He's fascinated by them, but I actually think that he's pretty alarmed by the ecological novelty that we're creating all around us. There is one thing, though, that distinguishes his thinking on the topic. What's that? It's that he doesn't define novel ecosystems as ecosystems composed of native and non-native species occurring in places that they never would have before, right? Instead, by definition, novel ecosystems are ecosystems that are, for all intents and purposes, unrestorable. Like, we, we can't restore them to native ecosystems. I came into the novel ecosystems work through a recognition of the um, effects of rapid climate change on ecosystems and where restoration, how restoration is going to deal with the future of ecosystems in which there were these sort of novel assemblages, right? New combinations of species that were emerging because of rapid change. So that was kind of a thought experiment initially. And then we were starting to put together literature and more and more people were doing this. You could come up with novel assemblies of species. So these were usually ecosystems that had arisen as a result of some kind of direct or indirect human disturbance. And you get an amalgam of species that have never existed before together, alien species, exotic species, and native ones. And then they persist over time and form these new ecosystems that um, we don't manage, we don't intervene, and they are doing, they are functional ecosystems, but they're just very different than what we've been used to. The salient feature of a novel ecosystem as we began to define it was that they were practically unrestorable systems. So that's what made them so difficult to wrestle with. It wasn't that we might not want to restore them, it's just that we couldn't restore them. And that's because you had um, persistent invasive species that made that job very difficult, or you had altered soil conditions or altered atmospheric conditions that would just constrain what that ecosystem could do. So you might restore until you're blue in the face and you're not going to get it back. You could invest millions of dollars into restoring an ecosystem and not have it go back. How do we even, how do we assess that though? I guess that's a question that I have moving into this, this part is, how can you tell in advance that you have no hope of restoring something? That's the question inherent in that definition. Mm -hmm. On the flip side, it's like functionality, right? Like the functionality conversation we had earlier was important because it's like, what do you mean by functional? And similarly with this question, it's like, what do you mean by impossible? So it's not the composition or the constituents of the ecosystem that necessarily makes it novel. It's just that it's almost impossible to restore to whatever we think it was historically. Yes, that and it's functional. And that's the other thing about novel ecosystems is we might think of them pejoratively, but they are ecologically functional. They are delivering ecosystem services. And in some cases, people either prefer them or they like aspects of them. And so that's what makes it so dastardly, right? Really complicated. So they're, they're resilient to change. They've got a lot of inertia. Yeah. And I think a good straightforward definition of this comes from a 2014 paper by Morse et al. They define novel ecosystems this way. A novel ecosystem is a unique assemblage of biota and environmental conditions that is the direct result of intentional or unintentional alteration by humans. That is, 
human agency, sufficient to cross an ecological threshold that facilitates a new ecosystem trajectory and inhibits its return to a previous trajectory, regardless of additional human intervention. The resulting ecosystem must also be self-sustaining in terms of species composition, structure, biogeochemistry, and ecosystem services. A defining characteristic of a novel ecosystem is a change in species composition relative to ecosystems present in the same biome prior to crossing a threshold. Okay, I think I think I get it, but I'm going to need another example. Sure. Okay, so in addition to eucalyptus forests in the Bay Area of California, um, there's another example. In the Morse paper, they refer to these abandoned shrimp ponds in Thailand. Okay. Yeah, they describe this area that used to be tidal mangrove forest and then was converted to aquaculture ponds to grow shrimp. But um, some of these shrimp ponds have been abandoned and when they're no longer tended, the elevated walls on the sides of the ponds tend to prevent the tides from coming in to wash over the whole area. And so the soils become dry and then they become saline because of all of the salt water evaporating in them and these halophytic or salt loving plant communities get established and so when researchers went in and tried to restore the mangrove forests on top of these old aquaculture ponds the trees just wouldn't grow and even when they tried to restore the tidal regime that originally allowed the trees to grow they found that the ponds would just keep accumulating sediment and that basically, like, to restore the mangroves, people would have to continuously excavate to try and create conditions favorable to the mangroves. Yeah, no, that that doesn't sound like a practical solution. Yeah, I mean, basically impossible to restore. So novel ecosystems occur all over the world and in many forms, but the thing that unites them is that they are functional and functionally unrestorable. And this makes them tricky. There's a, a sort of a moral entanglement with with novel ecosystems that makes them um, particularly difficult for us to process because we novel ecosystems are are free flowing in the sense that they are doing their thing with often without a lot of human input after the initial disturbance, but they arise through human disturbance. So it's through our actions, usually careless actions, that result in systems that go off in different directions and form these novel assemblages. So what is then our responsibility? Are, are we responsible? What, <laughs> what is our responsibility? It's kind of hard to draw clear boundaries around this concept. Like, maybe, maybe we can accept that in addition to oak woodlands and grasslands, California will also have some really funky eucalyptus forests. But what if climate change and fire suppression have turned the entirety of Western North America into a novel ecosystem that now has megafires all the time? Like, can we accept that? Right, yeah. Or, or what if the cumulative effects of salmon farms and industrial fishing and ocean acidification, melting glaciers and, and hydroelectric dams and the loss of intertidal ecosystems. Like, 
what if all those create novel conditions that salmon simply can't survive in anymore? I think most of us would say that is plainly unacceptable. Yeah, definitely unacceptable. But we might just not be able to fix some of those things. At, at best, I, I think that the point of, you know, calling these things novel ecosystems is just to help us recognize what is and what isn't within our power to accomplish and, you know, a- allow us to, like, prioritize the things that we can do and maybe step away from some of these, you know, novel ecosystems or hyperecologies that might actually just be fine on their own. Yeah, you know, this actually reminds me of the serenity prayer, you know, to accept all those things that you can't change and to find the courage to change those things that you that you can. Because there are a lot of places that are more damaged and also potentially more restorable, right? Like we we could actually give them some continuity with past ecosystems. You know, should we be trying to reflect historically continuous ecosystems? Absolutely. Should we be experimenting with bold new nature-based solutions to try to bring, you know, more functional systems into our cities? Definitely. Do we have to accept and work with novel ecosystems? Yes. We need to do all these things simultaneously. And that's what's important right now is figuring that out. And um, I mean, I, I'm pretty passionate about ecological restoration and I see lots of value in the more orthodox practices of it. And that will continue to be the case even under conditions of fairly significant change. But there's all these other practices, whether it's rewilding or forest landscape restoration or green infrastructure and ecological design and agroforestry and so on that are have similar impulses that are really important for us to engage. So there's a lot of paths to follow. And I, I take after Eric in that I think that as restorationists, we have to embrace a broad spectrum of practices and possibilities as long as as ecological integrity and historical continuity are embedded in there somewhere. And by historical continuity, I I don't necessarily mean a sort of nostalgic adherence to a prior ecological state, like we were talking about in the last episode. Historical knowledge is not univocal. It comes to us through many voices and through many different streams, and so it matters. We tend to focus a lot on history as reference in restoration, but you can have history as social justice and history as a, as a kind of form of knowledge that acts as a kind of break on our wilder ambitions. You can have um, history as a kind of model of the future. There's all sorts of different purposes and ways in which history functions in restoration that we need to take seriously. Yeah, I think that recognition that history isn't univocal, that's, that's key especially if we do want the full diversity of human cultures to be reflected in our landscapes. Yeah, and and if we don't have to have things be a certain way, it allows us to recognize opportunities that we might otherwise overlook. For example, what if the eucalyptus elm forest that I described wasn't just functional, but was also helping to decontaminate the land that it was on? Like, what if some of these hyperecologies actually hold the keys to adapting to novel conditions? Maybe they're trying to tell us something, if we listen to them. Yeah, 
And so I, I want to return to Oliver one more time because he's been looking for solutions in unlikely places. Or you could say the most likely places. Yeah, I, I'm interested in garbage. I, I find garbage fascinating. And, you know, obviously, you know, on some level it's revolting, but but I'm fascinated by the layers, the sort of palimpsest of, of kind of human existence. Like we've always created like some sort of detritus, right? So the First Nations here have middens and some of the middens go back thousands of years. People were living in, in areas for, for a long, long time. So that's like shells and, and stuff that they didn't want anymore, bones and so forth. So that's garbage. Uh, it's perhaps more aesthetic garbage, but it's, it's still garbage. And it tells you about what things people valued, uh, what kind of food they ate, what they what 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 sort of material conditions they in you know existed under and what what sort of passed through their lives, what passed through their literally their, you know, digestive tracts or 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 what they made and what they used. So I'm interested in that. And currently, you know, we, we live in a kind of uh, garbage-osphere. We, we, we've literally, you know, we're, we're at peak garbage. We're, we're, we're throwing so much stuff out, we're not recycling much. And most of the materials we used are um, either fossil fuel-based or, or similarly unsustainably sourced. So we, we have materials now that are extremely persistent in the ecosystem. So, and I'm fascinated by what that says about our, um, our sense of the future. We are kind of living in our own filth, especially climatically. You know, if you if you do consider carbon dioxide to be garbage or a pollutant, our own personal garbage sphere. It it probably wouldn't surprise you if I told you that Oliver is right at home on a garbage planet, right? <laughs> no, I'm not surprised. From very early on, actually, I have one more picture to share with you. Here it is. <laughs> Yo. So this is this is an early art installation that Oliver did at a gallery in Toronto that was in an industrial neighborhood with really contaminated soils. Yeah, that's ominous. Yeah, he planted a garden of sunflowers. And yeah, in, in the photo, you can just see him with sunglasses standing there watering the sunflowers. And there's a big sign beside them. And it says... Eat and get lead. <laughs> well, looks like a healthy crop, but yeah, wow. It's uh it it reminds me of that that John Carpenter movie, uh They Live, oh, where it has such an intensely John Carpenter vibe, you're right. Are you gonna are you gonna unpack They Live a little bit? <laughs> yeah, the, the the main character finds a box of sunglasses that uh when he puts them on they they let him see under the surface of, of advertising and marketing in this corporate world. And all of these billboards just have this propaganda written in this bold font. Unsue. And it looks just like that. This this kind of direct. Stay asleep. Unmistakable. Obey. Threatening. Eat and get led. Eat and get led. Mm-hmm. It's almost like an instruction, right? Like it's not even a warning. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an inducement. Yeah. I, I really love this picture. It's scary. I love it. But the cool thing is that sunflowers are actually known to bioaccumulate lead. So this is, you know, this is an art installation, but it's also another one of his botanical interventions. Maybe one of the earliest ones. 
because he could actually harvest the sunflowers once they were mature and dispose of them elsewhere, and that would actually pull the lead out of these soils. That's so rad. So he's doing bioremediation or, or phytoremediation back in... Wait, what year was this taken? 1988. Wow. And as you know quite directly, plants are not the only organisms that can detoxify the environment around them. There's so many other processes, like fungal processes, where you can use fungi to you know, bioremediate uh, contaminated landscapes or plants to phytoremediate. And so even now, you know, we're living in a kind of disastrous sort of state of contamination, you know, nature does develop mechanisms to address that contamination. So I'm fascinated by, by these disturbed, you know, post-industrial landscapes where you can, might be able to find, you know, a turkey tail mushroom. So Mendel, why would Oliver find a post-industrial turkey tail mushroom so exciting? I, like, like sunflowers, fungi are really useful for that heavy metal contamination and, and, and hyper-accumulating that in their bodies. Mm-hmm. And there's one particular process that Oliver picked up on that has totally blown my mind. I'm down to have my mind blown. I'm working on a project with my students at Parsons uh, where we're composting styrofoam, which is an ubiquitous waste product. It's very hard to recycle. There's piles of it all over New York City. So I'm composting it using mealworms, the common little mealworms, and they eat styrofoam, they depolymerize it, and they uh, uh, turn it into compost. Are you serious? Yeah, the, the gut bacteria of mealworms has been shown to break styrofoam down into biodegradable waste. That's amazing. This is something you can do at home. It's so fun and easy and, and will amuse your roommates and scare the hell out of them, possibly. But um, so... So you get styrofoam, right, just wherever, and you get mealworms, like from a pet store, right, and they eat it. Like, how cool is that, right? And, and not only do they eat it, they depolymerize it. So they have a symbiotic gut flora that breaks down this polystyrene, right, because polystyrene is uh, what's, what styrofoam is. It's, it's styrene molecules knitted together. And they break it down into humus, right? So how cool is that? You take this giant pile of white styrofoam. I had like a storage locker full of styrofoam that I turned into like a half a bucket full of compost, right? Takes a while, but they really go for it. And the more worms, the better. Look at that. Ooh, they're eating it. Man, this is my apartment in New York. When I sleep at night, I just hear this gnawing <laughs> A styrofoam being eaten, right? It's, it's, uh... You're kidding, right? <laughs> no, no, honestly, I love this sound. In your bathtub or something? No, I have them in little like like containers, like 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 like. like and on that note, Mendel, can I, can I show you something? Okay, sure. <laughs> What's this? You growing worms? <gasps> you doing an Oliver Kellhammer thing? Doing the Oliver Kellhammer thing. Oh man, are they going? Yeah, they're totally going here. I can hear Just them. Just be quiet for a sec. Oh my god, that's wild. Are they in the block right now? Yeah. They're just like chewing right through that block, like they've got like a little hotel in there, you know? It's so loud, it's amazing. I've never really been much of a pet person, but this totally captured my fancy. (laughs) Or they're kind of, they're a little bit more like livestock than pets, eh? Yeah, they seem pretty hands-off. Oliver always knows how to take things to the next level, too. Like, he's not just using the mealworms to compost styrofoam. 
He's also using them to make marketable art for himself. But me being an artist, I'm always looking for an angle, right? Going, oh, this is cool, but can I make this work for me? So I now make these beautiful things that I send to art galleries in Europe, which are basically pieces of garbage that I feed to the mealworms. And I take it away from the mealworms before they're done. And I put them on little stands and they become like, you know those Chinese scholar stones that you have in like formal gardens and, and they're these beautiful, exquisite stones that people use as objects of meditation and contemplation. Well, I make them on star form. So, oh, oh, you know, they remind me of sea sponges almost like it. And it's interesting because they're subtractive, right? They're not additive. Oh my God. And he's got the mealworms in these containers. Of course, part of this is like the the mealworm performance, right? It's not just the product, it's the action. <laughs> and just to bring things full circle, you remember Oliver's dad from the beginning? Yes. You know what he did for a living? No, <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, going back to this uh, business about my father, uh, you know, my late, late father, he worked in a styrene factory and, um, made, you know, one of the precursors to styrofoam. And as a kid, he used to come home and his coveralls were just reeking of that, like a burned coffee cup smell. And his pores would smell of, of burned styrene. And, you know, he was later on had cancers and so forth. But it's in one of my earliest memories is smelling burned styrene. And I'm probably part styrene myself. I was probably conceived in a styrene fog, you know. So, you know, I'm, I, it's a sort of, you know, poetic justice that, that the, the material that I've, I've been sort of, you know, struggling with my entire life is now being turned into soil by these insects. Yeah. Yeah, I like the poetry of that. The poetry of decay. So, relating back to novel ecosystems, what what I'm hearing, to your point, is that if we pay attention to these places and, and let them evolve, we we might actually learn a thing or two. I mean, people are always saying that we should preserve the Amazon rainforest because it's full of potentially life-saving medicines that we could study and replicate and maybe exploit, right? Mm -hmm. So why not also preserve some of these hyperecologies, these novel ecosystems? It's possible that they might have a thing or two to teach us about living in future ecologies. So I know that we weren't able to address who gets to create ecosystems and whose ecosystems might be considered legitimate or worth protecting. No, I, I think that'll have to be its own series. But if we set aside formal restoration projects, you could say that we're all ecosystem engineers in our own ways. I mean, we all have some impact on the world around us. And if you think like Oliver, even the litter bugs among us are making their own contributions to the garbageosphere that we all inhabit together. I mean, yeah, we can't avoid playing some part in that. And, and I think if I have one overarching takeaway from these conversations with Oliver and Eric that, that you've brought to me, 
I guess it's that we shouldn't retreat. We shouldn't be afraid of becoming more intentional shapers of our surroundings from getting involved in the pan-species direct democracy of all of these ecological processes. A lot of folks, because things are kind of scary right now in the world, are like retreating. They're like, oh my god, I'm going to live in a log cabin surrounded by barbed wire and I'm going to be in the basement with my pickles waiting for the big one, right? <laughs> like, and with my AK-47, right? If anybody tries to take my pickles, you know, they're, they're dead meat, right? That's not permaculture. That's not good. That's, that's, that's Unabomber that's like, you know, Ted Kaczynski. You don't want to be that person, right? Uh, and and so, so don't do that. Well, uh, what we need is an advance, not a retreat, all right? So we got to go into areas that are crazy, and then we got to try to fix things. So, so one of the permaculture principles that I love is go into the areas that are most disturbed and most screwed up that need help, right? Don't, don't always go into, like, pristine areas, right? The rainforest doesn't need you to garden it. It's fine, right? Like, you need to go into, like, wastelands. That's what, that's where you need. I, I asked Oliver about this later because in, in some ways I'm also attracted to damage. Mm-hmm. Like, I love being in healthy ecosystems, but when I come home, typically I'm, I'm surrounded by a landscape that has lots of visible signs of damage. And it's actually these damaged places where I feel like I can make a difference as a person. And in some ways that makes them feel like home to me. Even though I, I live on Galliano Island, which I think most people perceive as relatively undisturbed. Yeah, it's true. And I, I prefer to work and live, in, you know, in some ways. I mean, although I did live on Cortez Island for many years, which which was similarly beautiful. But um, I do think now that I'm older, I, I'm much more drawn to living in ecologies of disturbance where I feel I can make a difference in terms of improving the relationships between people in the landscape in ways that are, um, you know, constructive without, without, you know, you can't do too much more harm than, you know, when you're in a brownfield, it's like it's already pretty, you know, there's a lot of work that you can do that, that, that you're not having to agonize uh, quite so much because most, most things will be a, a slight improvement. And I mean, if I can make a quick interjection here. Sure. Yeah, I would say me too. Um, these abject spaces seem seem more ripe for possibility and and that's like your neighborhood right this is an industrial neighborhood it's a sandbox it's a it's a place to to play around and see what sticks and you don't have to worry about destabilizing a functional system yeah and in terms of creativity one of the words that eric uses in his book nature by design to describe ecological restoration is enlightened meddling <laughs> yeah which i think he totally forgot about so i i brought it i brought it up in our conversation enlightened meddling yeah i suppose i mean it's just that my experience with restoration is that yeah i like to think that i have all these goals and objectives and specific methods and you kind of put all this into place and you rein it in scientifically and so on but there is always just about every restoration project there is also a little bit of meddling you know a little bit of like huh i wonder if i try that over there i wonder if that would work
Mendel, I'm not sure if you know this, but 2021 will be the first year in the United Nations decade on ecosystem restoration. It's almost like you planned this whole series for just the occasion. It's actually a happy accident. All of which is to say, there's lots of good work to do out there. And I think this is a time that calls for, dare I say it? Don't you dare say it. Some audacity! All right, dear listeners, that's it for this series and for 2020. Let's bid this year a fond farewell together, shall we? Thanks for sticking with us through this fairly heady series. Our episodes in the new year will be something completely different. Something novel, perhaps. Why not? Happy novel year to you, Adam. Happy novel year to you, Mendel. Happy novel year, everyone. Thanks for listening. This has been an independent production of Future Ecologies. This episode was produced by myself, Adam Huggins. And me, Mendel Skolsky. In this episode, you heard Oliver Kellhammer and Dr. Eric Higgs. Oliver teaches at the Parsons School of Design at the New School, and you can learn about his many projects at oliverk.org. Eric teaches at the University of Victoria and is the author of several books, including Nature by Design, People, Natural Processes, and Ecological Restoration. He also edited the volume, Novel Ecosystems, Intervening in the New World Order. You can learn more about his work at erichiggs.ca. We'll be back next month. Please rate and review Future Ecologies wherever you can. We love getting your feedback, and it really does help us reach new listeners. Special thanks to Hannah Rossler, Sadie Couture, Todd Howard, Brea Seger, Ilana Fenaryev, Bastian Falan, Maya Gauvin, Nicole Yaris, and Jody Baker. Music for this episode was provided by Scott Gailey, C. Diab, Hidden Sky, and Sunfish, Moonlight. There's also a sequence of tracks in the middle of this episode by an artist friend of mine named Aaron S. Moran. And if you visit his website at aaronsmoran.com, He's got a series of artworks entitled Double Take that I think relate very nicely to this episode. If you like what we do, please share us with your friends. You can also support us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to special mini-episodes, interview segments, stickers, patches, and a Discord server. You can support us starting at just $1 a month by going to patreon.com futureecologies. You can always get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and iNaturalist. The handle is always Future Ecologies. You can find a full list of musical credits, show notes, links, and transcriptions on our website, futureecologies.net. All right, that's it for now. Happy novel year. Happy novel year. Is it over? Can I come out now? I'm so hungry. So, so hungry. I just want some styrofoam. Please, 
can you fetch me some styrofoam? You'll never see it again, I promise. <laughs>